Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Beck, for reading that for us. Now, what are we going to make of that? <laughs> um, let's have a look, see if I can get my iPad going. Let's, uh, let's pray and ask God to help us first. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the truth it teaches us about you and about the great salvation that you've worked uh, in this world and for us. We rejoice in that salvation, and as we look into this chapter now today, will you give us wisdom and clarity and fill us with your spirit that we might understand your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're studying the book of Daniel, obviously, written by the, uh, to the Jewish exiles in Babylon around the 6th century BC. And the message of Daniel is, is a message of hope. The exiles needed that hope for their present situation, being exiles in Babylon, and also for the future. They're in a strange land, away from their homes, away from their country, and everything familiar. And they needed hope to encourage them. And that's exactly what God gives them through Daniel. Chapters 1 to 6, we've seen, tells us about Daniel and his friends and how they get to be at the very centre of the empire for the entire time of the exile. And chapters 7 to 12 are the visions of Daniel, and we're entering into those chapters now, of things yet to happen. And it's all designed to fill the exiles with hope. Whether you look back in the past or forward into the future, Daniel tells us that God is in charge of history. He rules over the nations, and he has it all in his hand. That's the fundamental message of the book. And here in chapter 7, we have this monumental sweep through history from the time of Daniel right through the time of the return of Christ, all in one chapter. Daniel wants us to lift our eyes and see what God is doing. He still rules the world. He's fully in charge. The future is very bright if you lift your eyes. See, if your eyes are only ever down looking at the world and your circumstances, you'll only see chaos and disorder and hostility towards God and his people. But lift your eyes. God is on the throne. He's preserving his people. He's working his purposes in the world and he's building his kingdom. Lift your eyes to see that. And the exiles in, Babylon's, in, in, Daniel, in Daniel's day in Babylon needed to know this. They really needed to know this, and so do we. It's the hope we need when we watch the news on our television sets and see the turmoil in the world, the, the sort of economic turmoil, the rise of autocratic powers, the brutal military invasion of Ukraine by Russia, uh, the rise of Chinese power across the world. It's all under the control of the living God. Do you realise that? He rules the kingdoms of men. Ultimately, building his kingdom, his kingdom. And that's our hope, our God rules. And the big question of this chapter in Daniel 7 is this. Given the world is opposed to God and his people, what is it that we need to stand like Daniel? In fact, that's almost the question of the whole book. What is it that will energise us not to cave, not to fall, not to give up, but to live positively as Christians in this world? Daniel and his mates refused to compromise. 
They were courageous. They stood firm. Not even the threat of death by fire or lions could stop them from declaring their faith in the living God. What galvanizes such courage? Be good to know that, wouldn't it? Well, it's the worldview of this chapter. It's the truth laid out here in, in chapter 7 that energizes Daniel and his friends. And it can energize us as well. And we need to hear these truths and absorb them into our being. See, why is it that so many of us lack courage? You ever thought of that? Why do we as Christians so often fail to stand, and so easily buckle at the first sign of sort of opposition or difficulty? Perhaps it's because we know this truth intellectually, but we haven't really fully absorbed it so that it doesn't affect us and grip us and change us. See, you know if the truth has really gripped you and you've really understood it, if you stand firm, don't you? Do you stand for Christ in the face of opposition? Are you a courageous Christian? And there are two great truths that this chapter opened up, up, up for us that we need to take hold of. That'll give us the courage to stand. And they're both about God's perspectives. God's perspective of human history and God's perspective on the future. Let's have a look at the text. Firstly, we need God's perspective on human history. Daniel has this terrifying dream. It's, a, it's an apocalyptic scene, isn't it? Describing centuries of turbulent history. Kingdoms rising, kingdoms falling, and, the, and culminating in open hostility to God and his people. It's a terrifying dream. Now, apocalyptic history is like impressionist art. If you stand up close, you can't actually see a thing. It's all sort of brush strokes and blotches of paint. You'll miss the point if you focus on all the little details. But scan the picture, take the whole thing in as a scene, and it comes into clear view, doesn't it? That's what we have got to do with this dream. The other thing about apocalyptic literature is that it's designed to tell us what the world is really like and where history is going. And what we see here, in, that's what we see here in this vision of the four beasts. What we see is human power without reference to God. Look at verse 3. Four great beasts, each different from, another, from the other, came out of the sea. The first was like a lion, down to verse 5. A second beast which looked like a bear, verse 6. Another beast that looked like a leopard. Verse 7, after that in my vision at night I looked and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful, it had a large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot what was left. It was different from all the former beasts and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns there before me was another horn, a little one which came up among them and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Now, verse 17 tells us that these beasts are kings and their kingdoms. And the point is, over the course of history, there's going to be centuries of turmoil and upheaval in the world and hostility towards the people of God. Now, some people suggest that the four kingdoms represent Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. But whatever the detail, the general picture is clear. There will be kings and kingdoms like the lion, 
with eagle's wings in verse 4. Royal, powerful, swift, hungry. There will be kings and kingdoms like the bear. Verse 5, bloodthirsty with remains of its last meal still in its mouth. We've seen kingdoms like that, haven't we? Violent, militaristic killing machines. And there will be kings and kingdoms like the leopard, verse 6, with four wings and four heads suggesting vision and speed. Nothing can escape its reach. Think of the kingdoms of history. We can't classify them exactly, but think of them like the Greek kingdom under Alexander the Great. Huge, vast kingdom, spread very quickly. The Roman Empire under Caesar Augustus. Very controlling, a brutal empire. The British Empire, the German Third Reich. Some powerful, some violent, some swift. But all the kings and kingdoms described here, of all of them, the fourth one is the most terrifying, isn't it? This king's violent aggression is specifically directed against God and his kingdom and his people. Verse 25 tells us that he will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people. This beast is a mix of politics and religion to bring about world domination. That's exactly what happened to the exiles already. Under Nebuchadnezzar, he set up his statue, and when the music played, everyone had to bow down and worship it or be thrown into the fiery furnace. And during the reign of Darius, nobody was allowed to pray to anyone except to the king for 30 days or be thrown to the lions. It's a deadly mix, isn't it, of politics and religion, opposing God and seeking to wipe out God's people. That's exactly what happened in Babylon in Daniel's day. And that's what this beast represents. And, of course, the Apostle John has similar vision in Revelations 13. See, when politics and religion come together, it's a deadly cocktail. Whether it's the cult of the emperor in the Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar or the Roman emperor under Caesar, and you remember that he declared himself a god and everyone had to sort of bow down to him and say, Caesar is Lord or under the powerful medieval popes in the Middle Ages, or the Soviet rule under Stalin's time, or the mullahs of the Iranian state, or the Kim dynasty in North Korea. This is how it'll be for the whole of the gospel age. Rulers will rise up with a mix of religion and politics and demand the worship of God's people on pain of torture and death. That's how it is in the world today in many places. For millions of people living, say, in in China or North Korea or in the Middle East. And any Christian who refuses to bow to the state but stands up for his faith is in grave danger. And that can unsettle us, can't it? Look at verse 15. Daniel, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. And when Daniel received the interpretation, we read in verse 28, I, Daniel, was deeply troubled and my thoughts and my face turned pale. Who can stand against this sort of onslaught against the faith? Here in Australia, we we have it so good, haven't we? We still have sort of freedom of religion at the moment. But the values of our society are changing quite rapidly, aren't they? They're shifting against God and against the standards he wants his people to live by. And it unsettles us, doesn't it? 
We're just reading the 2021 census the other day. It tells us that almost 40% of Christians now consider themselves non-religious or secular. See, if you don't worship at the, at the shrine of secular humanism and adopt its values now in the West, well, you're sort of un-Australian, aren't you? And you feel the constant pressure to conform and serve what is in ultimately Satan's agenda. That's how it'll be until Christ returns. But Daniel reminds us that even in times of the most terrible upheaval and persecution, God still rules history. None of it is out of his control. Look at those beasts in verses 4 to 6. The beast like a lion had the wings, uh, like a lion had wings like an eagle that were torn off. It was lifted from the ground, verse 6 says, so that it stood on two feet like a human being and the mind of a human was given to it. And that reminds us of sort of Nebuchadnezzar, doesn't it, who was humbled and uh, sort of became an, like an animal and ate grass and came to worship, but he was humbled and came to worship God. He became sort of ruler God wanted, who acknowledged God, a true human ruler under God. And verse 5, the beast like a bear with uh, ribs still in its mouth from its last meal. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. And then verse 6, the beast like a leopard with four wings and four heads was given authority. It was given authority to rule. In other words, God is still in charge. Kings and kingdoms only exist by his authority. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar comes to incenses and he acknowledges the living God. He writes a testimony to his people throughout the empire. We saw that back in chapter 4, didn't we? Three times in his letter, he says, The most high is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. That's a comfort, isn't it? As Christians, we belong to God and he's always working for the good of his people. So what's our place in this? Well, I think we can be seen in two places in this little drama. We can be the chewed up remains, can't we, in the mouth of the bear, the suffering, persecuted people of God. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. That's the lot of all true Christians. We're pilgrims here, we're aliens. We don't belong in a secular, permissive culture that Australia has become. It's going to trouble us and it's going to oppress us. And I think the other place we can be seen sometimes is in this little horn, can't we? We can't escape some identification with the boastful little horn, can we? Mike Rader talks about what he calls dog and cat theology. You've heard of dog and cat theology? The dog says, you pet me, you feed me, you shelter me, you love me, you must be God. The cat says, you pet me, you feed me, you shelter me, you love me, I must be God. And sometimes we're so taken up with ourselves that we expect everyone else, other people, the church, society, to serve us and meet our needs. My children fulfil my desire to, as a parent, to be a parent. My church is there to look after my needs. Society exists to give me a comfortable life. And every conversation is a chance to talk about me and my struggles and my successes. We need rescuing from that, don't we, sometimes? We need rescuing from the beast without who wants to persecute and destroy our faith and we need rescuing from the beast within 
that pride that so easily rises, the cat theology that we're into sometimes, we fall to. We need God's perspective on human history. He rules over it all and he's working his purposes out to save his people from their folly. Let that truth fill you with courage to stand firm. The second thing we need is to stand courageously in this world is God's perspective on the future. See, no matter how powerful these kings and kingdoms are on the stage of history, there will be a final judgment. In verse 9, there's a change of scene. Did you notice that? In fact, the little horn is so absorbed with himself and his boasting, he fails to see what's happening just behind him. Notice in the face of the chaos in the world, there's a settledness, there's a solidness here. Look at verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as wool. His hair, the hair of his head was white like wool. White as snow, sorry. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the book was opened. At the end of history there will be a day when the holy, all-powerful God who made us and gives us life will sit in judgment and summon everyone before him. And the books will be opened And the record of every thought, word and deed, every motive and inclination, everything that happened is exposed from the tiniest individual act to the greatest atrocity. It will be laid bare, all of it, before a holy, pure and perfect God. And this is a day you and I can't avoid. It's in the diary. It's in the diary for every single one of us. It's a certainty. And the extraordinary thing here is, in this story, is the little horn doesn't notice. You feel like saying, look behind you. But no, he keeps on talking. There is no God. I can live my life without God. I've got more important things to do. My life, my sport, my career, my family. Look at verse 11. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words of the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. What is it that sustains Daniel in exile? How is he able to stand firm in the face of this pagan rule of Nebuchadnezzar and Belteshazzar and Darius? Well, because he knew that these powerful kings and all rulers in history are ultimately accountable to God. They will one day face judgment. The world around us has forgotten this by and large, hasn't it? People these days sort of scoff at the idea of judgment day. Like the little boastful horn, they take no notice. But Jesus says it's coming and it'll come like a thief in the night, suddenly and unexpectedly. We dare not lose sight of this. It's inevitable. It's the destiny of every human being, depending on their response to God. On the 6th of August, 1945... In Hiroshima, people were building their charcoal fires to cook breakfast. Others were hanging out washing. Still others were shopping at the market. At 8 o'clock in the morning, life went on as usual. Many saw a plane pass over at 8.15, but took no notice of it and simply went on their way. 
Suddenly, tragically, Hiroshima was no more. And nobody in that city was ready. Not one. And it'll be like that for those who mock God, for all rulers who refuse to humble themselves before him. One day in September 2019, Robert Mugabe, the brutal tyrant who ruled Zimbabwe for 37 years, pretty much plundering the country, died. In 2008, he said, only God appointed me, not the MDC, that's the opposition party, or the British, only God will remove me. He got that right, didn't he? If only he knew the, tr the truth that the court will sit and the Ancient of Days will take his seat and the books will be opened and he'll have to give an account for everything that he did. But notice another thing that encouraged Daniel and the exiles. Jesus is given all authority. Look at verse 13. In my vision that night I looked and there before me was one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. Notice the figure of the Son of, <clears throat> Son of Man. It's actually a divine figure. <clears throat> He's coming on the clouds of heaven. He's able to approach the Ancient of Days. No human can do that. But he's also a fully human figure. He's one like the Son of Man. This is what human beings should be like. This is man as he meant to be, having dominion over the world, ruling and caring for God's world for God, under God, as his vice-regent. The reason the world is such a mess is because we failed to do that. But here is someone who rules God's world for God. He's given authority and power and glory and a kingdom that will last forever, and everyone will worship him. And we know from the New Testament that this is Jesus. He takes the title Son of Man to himself, doesn't he? He says things like, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. And listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 26 when Caiaphas, the high priest, asked him at his trial, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? And Jesus said, I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And in Acts 1 verse 9, we read that after Jesus said this, he was taken from their very eyes and a cloud hid them from their sight. And two men dressed in white said, this Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way. And of course, in Acts chapter 7, 56, Stephen, when he was being martyred, says, look, I see heaven open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. Think about it. If this is true, if Jesus is the Son of Man who gave himself and died on the cross to rescue us from our sin and who has now been given all authority in heaven and on earth, shouldn't we own him as Saviour and Lord? Who wouldn't want to own him when the future is that all his people, the saints, will be redeemed? This world rejects God and his people. Tyrants and kingdoms use politics and religion to oppress and persecute God's people. John Newton said that in his, his famous hymn, Amazing Grace. You know, through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. But grace has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. Look at verse 18. 
but the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. It's a staggering comment, isn't it? It's a story of a missionary returning home to the US after spending many years abroad on the same boat as a famous celebrity. He saw the crowds waiting on the quay, waving their banners and flags, welcoming the celebrity home. And the, and the missionary suddenly felt quite discouraged. He'd sacrificed so much for the Lord. He'd poured out his life for the gospel. As he scanned the faces on the, on the, on the quay, he realised that no one had come to welcome him home. And as he battled with his self-pity, it suddenly occurred to him, don't be discouraged. You're not home yet. This life isn't it. As the Apostle Paul says, our present sufferings are not, being, are not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. And Jesus says to us this morning, do not be afraid, little flock, for the Father is pleased, has been pleased to give you the kingdom. That's the future we need to know about to be able to stand courageously in this world, isn't it? Let me finish. Are you living in the light of God's perspective on history and on the future? God rules the world. Nothing's out of his control, not even the suffering of his people. And he will one day come to judge all tyrants and despots and atheistic rulers who oppose him and his people. And God will redeem his people and give them the kingdom. It's, a, it's only a vision so astounding and a truth so compelling that will enable us to stand courageously and faithfully in our age, won't it? And the question is, where is your focus? Day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. Is it on yourself or is it on Jesus? That's the choice. And we will only live well, like Daniel, in this brutal world of beasts, if we live it with Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again this morning for your word. Fill us with your spirit that we might see things as you see them and have your perspective on the past, the present and the future. Thank you that this world is in your hand and that despite the turmoil we see around us everywhere, Christ has been given all authority in heaven and on earth and will one day return to judge the living and the dead and make all things new. Fill us, Lord, with the hope of the gospel. May that reality and that truth fill us with strength that we need to stand firm and wait patiently on the Lord for our lives and for his return. All praise and honour and glory belongs to you, for you do all things well for the good of your people. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.